Let's us uh, open up with prayer, and I will start together. Father, I thank you so much for giving us a space and this time. And I pray, Father, as we are gathered here in your presence, may our hearts, our minds be renewed. May our hearts and our minds be revitalized again, Father Lord. May your Holy Spirit do your work, Father Lord, in each one of our hearts. I pray, Father, that we will experience you. I pray, Father, that our lives, Father, may be transformed by you. I pray, Father Lord, will you bring healing to those who need healing. May you bring hope to those who need hope. And may your word, may it solidify our hearts and our faith. I pray, Father Lord, may we learn how to lean on you. May we learn, Father Lord, that you are our everything. May you inspire us again, Father Lord, in this place. So thank you, Father. We commit this space, this time, this worship into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're continuing in our series uh, called Alignment. And as we are going through the series, this alignment series, it really is about uh, checking up on our alignment with God and to see how we are doing in our faith living and whether it is aligned to what God has to say or whether it's simply aligned to what we have to say. You know, every, any difficult or challenging uh, situation that we face, even the good things that begin to happen in our lives, it can subtly throw us out of sync. So whether it's a challenge or whether it's a good, uh, good thing that happens to our life, these kind of things can throw us out of alignment in terms of who God is, what his kingdom is about, and how he is leading us. You see, when we are aligned with God, what it does is it, it turns our faith, it transforms our faith in ways that we never thought was possible. For some of us who feel like we're disconnected or some of us who feel like I've been doing this for a long time but something feels off or something's not really clicking, this is what alignment helps us to do. It, it helps us to experience God's power in prayer again. It helps us to begin to see the community that we are with in a different light and recognize, wow, this community not only builds me up and I see the, the equipping and the life-givingness of this community around me, but I myself can be that for other people around me. You see, alignment, it also helps us to see our worship differently. So rather than coming to church and just going through the motions of worship, we begin to see that God is worthy of our worship. We begin to see that God is worthy of all these good things of us proclaiming him. And there is no shyness anymore. There is no kind of us holding back anymore. We just understand that when we're in God's presence in worship, it transforms our minds and our hearts. This is why, brothers and sisters, alignment is so important for us. You know, a few days ago, uh, this, I sent out this weekly church newsletter. And there's a quote that was in there that uh, was given by, an, um, by a late NFL coach named Jim Garrett. And in his experience, as not just as a player, but also as a coach, he noticed and he observed something about most players who are engaged in the game and most players that he had to coach in the game as well. He noticed this, that everyone is ready to win. Everyone's ready. They want to experience that win, that victory. But he also noticed that few are prepared for it. Everyone's ready to win. Everyone's ready to experience the glory that comes with victory. But very few are willing 
to prepare for it. You know, some people just like putting on a uniform. And with that uniform comes the prestige of being part of a team and, and brings this kind of like sense of security, the sense of I'm part of something. You know, other people, sometimes they lean a little bit more too heavily on their talent. Because they have natural talent, they just feel like, you know what, I'm just going to go out there and do my thing. And they don't really practice, they don't really see the value of the teammates around them because they feel like I'm so much better than everyone else. I'm so much more at a higher level that I can just show up and do my thing. You know, still others... Uh, they experience distraction. So when you are doing really well, you know, people ask you, hey, let's shoot some commercials. Or they invite you out and saying, hey, do you want some more sponsorship? Or the parties that they need to attend. Or all of this kind of glamorized lifestyle that distracts us from actually playing the game that we're called to play and preparing for it. So when they put on their uniforms on game day, and with all these other stuff that are going on in their lives... If they haven't prepared, then they get used to a mediocre playing style. They begin to blame, blame others for not winning. They get upset at the kind of uh, the teamwork or the quality that they experience on the field. And Jim Garrett, as he noticed this, he's just saying, a lot of people are ready to win, but few are prepared to do it. You know, for some of us, I think that this is a great quote that our church and followers of Jesus Christ need to be reminded of today. You know, we have many churchgoers that are ready to experience God. We're ready to have God to do his thing in our life and to do his thing in the community around us. And for us just to be a part of that mass group that's doing something great and for us to just be part of that flow to get in into that current and just saying, yes, this is awesome, and to be excited about it. Every Christian, every follower of Jesus Christ, we're ready to experience God. But at the same time, just like these football players, is it true that some of us and few of us may be prepared for that win, may be prepared for that victory, may be prepared for that true encounter with God? You see, just like these football players, we can put on our Christian names and then on game day for us, whether it's on Sunday or some other day where we worship together, that we just show up and we just expect God do your thing. We just expect God move in our hearts, move in our minds, move in our lives, do your thing. And I'll just be swept up and into this. I'll just come prepared um, for just that day. I'll put on my stuff and, you know, I'll show up and I just expect you to move. And yeah, sure, I'll volunteer or I'll help out in, in various areas. But that's it. We just show up on game day. And there's little in terms of the preparation process for that encounter with God. You know, sometimes when we do this, and just like football players who get used to a lack of preparation, we can play the game and we can keep on playing it, but then we start getting used to a mediocre type game environment. 
It becomes so mediocre that we don't want to play anymore. It, we lose interest. There's nothing spectacular. There's no comeback. There's nothing to celebrate together. Everyone just shows up individually, and they just do their thing, and then everyone grumbles at the end because it wasn't great, or they lost, or sometimes they win, but it's a mediocre team, and they just go home, and no one is happy. You know, in that same way, sometimes for us, if we get used to a mediocre type of way of faith, then what we start to look for is we just look for those kind of like mass experiences. I just need this one pickup kind of thing where we don't, again, we don't prepare for anything and we don't align ourselves to anything in the rest of our lives. We just want to show up and have God do its thing. When we get used to that kind of faith, that kind of lifestyle, what happens is that we start getting used to a faith that makes no difference. A faith that doesn't feel like it's a transformative thing in our life. You know, in today's passage, Jesus was getting more and more popular. And all these crowds of people began to hear, hey, did you hear what Jesus is doing? He's healing people. And people are walking away from that experience saying, wow, you know, I've been, uh, I've been hurt or I've been physically ill for my whole life and Jesus suddenly just heals me. And people say, really, can he do that for me too? Other people are hearing that he casts out demons, principalities, idols that have been keeping people locked in into a certain self-imprisonment for all of these years. And he's released them. People are like, wow, maybe he can do that for me and my darkened mind or my broken relationships, whatever it may be. Other people are hearing, hey, can this be the Messiah? Is this someone that we can get excited for? That he's going to transform our society and bring us back and into glory where we can be proud of our culture and our, and our ethnicity. And people think, yeah, I want to be a part of that. And so as word begins to spread, people start joining. There's no preparation. They just want to be a part of it. And they start following. And as they follow Jesus from town to town, as he's doing ministry, these crowds keep getting bigger and bigger. Many were following, and as Jesus hears all these whisperings behind him, as he's doing ministry from house to house, he's beginning to hear something. And what he hears is this. People are saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he's hearing. Hey, do you guys want to follow too? We are followers of Jesus Christ. You guys follow as well. And that kind of Verb, uh, verbiage is getting louder and louder. All these crowds of people are assuming themselves to say, I am a follower of Jesus. I represent what the rest of the disciples are. And that's where we find ourselves in today's passage. If you open your, your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 35, let me read it for us. It comes from the NIV. Luke 14, 25 to 35, it reads this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. 
Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will seek for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, the first point that I want to bring out as we explore this passage together is this. I want us to really consider this invitation that Jesus gives to each one of us. It's an audacious call. And in this audacious call, Jesus turns around and he begins to address all of these would-be followers, people who claim themselves to be, we are followers of Jesus Christ, or we are disciples of this man. And so as Jesus is hearing it, and the crowd is getting too large now, before it moves into a place where they become something that say they represent Jesus, but they don't really represent him, before it gets to that point, he turns around and he goes, I got to address this. And as he addresses it, look what he says. Let's be honest. This passage that we've read together, I'm sure you've read it in the past before. It's a very difficult passage for us to digest, for us to swallow. It's, it's very upfront, and it's very convicting. And we kind of figure out, Jesus, you're being a little bit too extreme. Jesus, you're... You're going way beyond what you have to go beyond. Is that really what it is? He turns around, looks at the crowd, and we'll just say you guys are the crowd. He looks at the crowd and it says this. Any one of you who claims to be a follower of me, if you don't hate your father or mother, brothers or sisters, and even your own life, he says, don't bother. You cannot be my disciple." That's really extreme. You would kind of think that a person who is doing ministry and wanting people to follow him, you would think that he would make the presentation, you think that he would make the call a lot more better where people think, I want to sign up for that. But they hear this. Imagine these people positive, excited, and saying, yeah, we're following you. We are followers of Jesus. And he turns to them and he says to them, if you don't hate your mother or father, do you hate your mother and father? Do you hate your brother or sister? Do you hate your own children and even your own life? If you don't, don't even consider it. Stay there and stop calling yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Now imagine if Jesus was a politician. 
And as a politician, if he's trying to garner votes, imagine him setting up his own soapbox here, gathering people and wanting people to vote for him and his ways so that he can get into power, get into government, and do the things that he wants to do. Imagine Jesus saying this, if you're going to vote for me, he says, and I want you to vote for me, you can bet you will lose your families, you can bet you will lose your own homes. Imagine him saying, hey, if you want to vote for me and follow me, I demand sacrifice. And this kind of sacrifice will make your taxes higher and your income lower. He says, that's why you should vote for me. He also says, you can expect to forget all your important relationships because you're either all in here and you will have to sever those relationships to follow me because I will not permit you to go off and have your own life when we are doing my campaign. Imagine after this kind of proclamation on the soapbox, he brings out this kind of ballot box and he gives out tickets. Now, who of you is with me? Who of you will sign your name, put it in my ballot box, and then you will vote for me to be your leader, to be your representative? I'm sure when we hear it in this kind of context, and I'm sure as the crowds were hearing this, no one in their right mind would say, say, yeah, sign me up for that. That's what I want to follow. That's what I've been missing in my life. More sacrifice, less of me. Nothing about me is important. And I just want to make my life all about this leader and what he is all about. You see, we need to be careful because it sounds like that's what Jesus is saying to the crowds. It sounds like that's what he's inviting people to. Hate your family, hate yourself, and then you are worthy to follow me. So if that's not Jesus' message, what really is Jesus' message here? What is he really alluding to? Well, the passage that sets up this scene, and the passages that follow this scene when he turns to all the crowds and tries to explain to them what he is all about, look at the bigger context of what is happening. I'm going to show you here. In Luke chapter 13, verse 31 to 35, uh, chapter earlier, Jesus shares with the people who are there. He says, the world is broken, and the leaders of this world, who was King Herod at that time, are not helping. That's the context. The world is broken, and there's political leaders who are supposed to help take care of the people are not helping. They're just taxing them to the point where they're just benefiting their own lives. This is the reality of the world that we live in. In Luke chapter 14, 1 to 14, now he also says, and you can't even rely on the religious institutions because even the religious leaders that are there, they are broken as well, as well as its leaders, and they keep making compromises in their faith and manipulating scriptures in a way to maintain their own power. Right after that passage, he says in Luke 14, 15 to 23, he says, even the people of God who's called to help fix this broken world, they're invited and they're saying, come and join me to this wedding banquet so we can celebrate the people who are lost and broken and they're supposed to come back into a healing relationship with the Father again. These same people of God that's supposed to represent this change, represent this community, represent this kind of new culture, they're not showing up. So all these broken people are showing up in this wedding banquet that, that they're supposed to be the honored guests that are celebrated, and all the people that are supposed to be hosting them, they said, oh, sorry, 
I'm too busy. I got to build my house. Oh, sorry, I'm too busy. I got to take care of my own relationships. Oh, sorry, I'm too busy. I need to go harvest my own fields. All these people of God that are supposed to be the ones that are showing the world what this community is supposed to be about, they're the ones that are not showing up. And then finally, after this passage, in Luke 15, he goes through the famous parables that we all know, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. And he keeps saying over and over and over again, there are lost and broken people that are out there that no one will go to. This is the context that surrounds this passage when he turns to the crowd and he says to them, if you don't hate your father, mother, brother, sisters, and and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. So what's Jesus trying to say in this context? Think of it in this way. Rather than a politician saying, hey, vote for me. Hey, make sure that I am your master and I'm your Lord. And make sure that you give up your whole life so that you maintain and you can prove to me that you are worthy to be called my disciple. That's not the kind of leadership that Jesus is showing. Think of him as a rescue mission leader. Now, as a rescue mission leader, we'll just say that there is a notorious government that is wreaking havoc on a certain people group. They're attacking them, doing genocide, taking away any medical or medicine that they need. And this group of people that are there are suffering and they're dying. And your own government is not doing anything about it because they're saying, A, it will ruin our political relationship with these people, so we can't go in and we can't help them. And Jesus, as he sees that, he says to them, I don't care if our government's not going to act, I am going to act. And then Jesus gets on the soapbox and he says to people, hey, I'm I'm going into that country. And despite the leaders that are there, and despite... The fact that our own government tells us we cannot go in. I'm going in because these people matter. I'm going in because we have the resources to actually help and to make a difference. I'm going in despite the fact that if I do, it may cost my life. Now he says to the crowds, if you don't hate your father, brother, uh, sisters, and even your own life, He says, then you cannot come follow me. What he's saying is this. If you're joining in this for this particular task and this particular mission, if you're always saying as as we're engaging together and we're going into this place together, oh, it's too tough, or oh, I need to go back to my parents, or oh, you know what, I don't want to really lose out on these other important relationships in my life. He's saying, you can't do it. It's this understanding that these people are suffering. It's the understanding that these people need something that we have and saying we are willing to give it to them. We're willing to go through the mountain pass, and that's why sometimes we can't carry all of our our possessions with us because this mountain pass is treacherous. We can't just go right into the country. We need to go in through the back door. This is why sometimes we need to let go of our possessions Going into this country means sometimes leaving what your family members desire. Sometimes family members will say, don't do that. Just stay behind. Let's just be comfortable together. Let's just enjoy our time. But if you know that you have the skills, you have the resources, and you have the know-how to help certain people, and you know that that's your call. He's saying sometimes we have to put aside some relationships for this particular task. And not always hold 
these relationships as a main value system that holds the highest priority of our life. You can imagine this as a war scene. And people understand that not all of us will come back. But this battle is worth fighting for. And that's why when Jesus addresses the crowds, he says what he says here, saying, if you want to follow me, there are going to be moments in your life where I lead you into a battle. And your parents will say, you cannot go. He says, if you hold your parents' words higher than mine, in those moments, you can't follow me. He said, there are moments where your spouse will just say, no, I want more comfort, or I, I don't want to live my life this way. And he says, if you hold your spouse's comments or values more than mine, and you can't lead them in that kind of way, he says, you can't be my disciple. He says, if your own children are holding you back, he says, you can't be my disciple because there are moments in our life where we are going to be challenged. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, are you willing to be prepared and ready for that challenge? Jesus is not saying, now let me be really clear, Jesus is not saying, don't value your family. He's not saying your family doesn't matter. He's not saying your family isn't important. But what Jesus is saying is, who is your Lord and who do you trust? Do you trust your family and those relationships more than you trust the Lord your God? Do you want to hold on to your own family values more than you believe in what God's kingdom is supposed to bring? This is the challenge. So sometimes when it comes to our work and, and there's a discrepancy between us doing our work and us living according to God's kingdom value, he's saying this, if you have work as your higher authority than me, you cannot be, your, you cannot be my disciple. It doesn't work. Because all of those important times where your faith really matters, because all this preparation phase that we go through is for those times, those particular times where God calls us and says, now is the time to act. It's those times that we've been preparing for. And if we can't say yes at those times, and we always think back to our comfort and to our safe zone, and just to say, no, this is the line for me, I won't traverse it. Jesus is saying, this is not what a disciple of Jesus is about, because you never get to experience me, you never experience the thrill of seeing hope being reinstilled into people's lives, and my power being used in ways that you've never experienced before. See, this is what he's inviting us to. See, these, all these things can become our idols. And we, when we have that urgent task that he lays before us, the question that Jesus gives to the crowd is, will you be able to follow? Will we be able to say yes? Here's the second point that we see in this passage. So the life then that you are building, is it worth building? The, the faith life that you are investing in right now, how you are nurturing your faith life, how you are preparing your faith life, is that building worth it for what you are putting in? 
and the outcome that you expect. You see, Jesus in this passage, the next thing that he talks about after he turns to the crowd and he says to them that unless you are willing to have that me as your highest value, you cannot be my disciple, right after that, he talks about buildings. You know, during Jesus' time, the most important building project at that time was actually the temple of God in Jerusalem. In Jesus' time, the most important building project that was happening at that time, the most significant construction that was happening in Jerusalem at that time was the temple of God, the thing that represents our relationship with God. It was Herod the Great that was putting all of his resources into rebuilding this temple. And not only that, he was putting so much effort into it, it wasn't just his resources, but he passed it off to his children. And he said to his children, use your resources to help build this temple that represents our strength, that represents God is for us, that represents our blessedness. But the problem with this building that Jesus, is, that Jesus is bringing out in this passage, he's saying, is this temple building and all the sacrifices that you are doing to build what you say is your relationship with God, is it worth it? Because what's it all for if God already said to them, hundreds of years earlier, I have forsaken this temple. I no longer dwell in this place. If God already stated that I'm not there, then why are we building it? Why were they building it? See, in Luke chapter 13, 35, that's what what uh, Jesus says. God had already mentioned to his people, I've abandoned this house. And what we see a little bit later on is as the Romans came in, they completely destroyed all that work that they put into it in the temple, the, the temple was in ruins. So you got to ask yourself, if that's what their faith represented, and they're putting all that effort into building this faith, Jesus is asking them, what are you building, and is it worth building? When we look at our own faith life that we have, and we decide, this is what I want my faith life to look like. Superficially, it should look great. Superficially, I'm putting all this time into it, but there's no substance inside. God is not there. It's because it's what we want to build. It's what we want our faith life to look like. It's what we want God to act like in our life. And so we put in this kind of effort to build this, and Jesus asks us that same question. What are you building? And if the whole reason behind it is so that God can be part of your life, but God has already said, I'm not there. I'm here leading you in this way, in this charge, but you will not follow then why are we building this? Because if God is not in this space, no matter how much we build it, the foreshadow that we see in this passage is that it will be destroyed. It will be meaningless. We spend all of these years building a faith life in a certain way, and at the very end, we realize God was never there. And as that faith life is destroyed because we go through a certain circumstance in our life, a certain hardship that makes us second guess our whole relationship with God. And we say, well, forget this. I'm leaving all of this, and this is not going to be my religion anymore, and I'm just going to do my own thing now. Then what was the point? See, brothers and sisters, don't we want to experience a faith life where as hard as it may be, 
and what kind of preparation and readiness that it calls us to, don't we want to experience a faith life that is worth fighting for? Where we actually experience its real fruitfulness in our life. And yes, it may cost us a lot, but in the same way of finding victory, of of following Jesus in those urgent tasks and urgent life decisions that he calls us to, but seeing God work and seeing our hearts renewed in this hope and this expectation that God is still real, God's still working in our lives, isn't that more worth it to say that this is real? It's not just a superficial call that we build for our own comfort's sake. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful to overestimate the kind of control we believe that we have in our life-faith balance. This is exactly the problem that the Pharisees had when they were building this temple and allowing Herod to put all of his government money into this temple. The Pharisee says, we know the line. We know that we're in bed with someone who is not a follower of God. But we are using King Herod. We are using his power and his money. And we're using it for a good thing. We're using it to build this temple so that we can feel good about our faith. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had it in their mind. We can control. We have a good grip on how much influence the world has on our lives. And we're walking that fine balance. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't realize how easily the world and the world's value creeps up into your spirit. That even though you think that you are in control, you're not. And your faith will soon be demolished. You see, brothers and sisters, when we look at our own faith, same as Sadducees and Pharisees, we have to be very careful of how much control we think we have over the world's culture the world's influences that it has on our faith. A lot of us, we're saying, hey, I'm living this way and I'm enjoying the world in this kind of way. And I know the line. And I'm going to walk that line and I'm going to make sure that I never cross it. And because I have control over it, my faith is secured. Brothers and sisters, be warned. No, it's not. It's not secured. We'll come to a place where we notice that one day, because we've been in bed with the culture, with our world, and we allow it to absorb and sink in into our minds and our hearts, our attitudes, our perspectives, at some point, we're going to come to the place where we realize, I don't see the line anymore. You see, it's very subtle. Yet we're so confident at this point because we trust in our own righteousness. We trust in our own rationality. We trust in our own discipline. That we think we have control, but we don't. So Jesus asks us again, who told you to build this temple? Who told you to build your faith the way that you are building it? Is it led by my spirit? Or is it something that you have determined yourself. You see, this is why Jesus says in being prepared, the religious leaders, they believe that they're in control and he says, says, you are not and if you only have 10,000 men and the invading army is 20,000, would you not 
be wise, knowing that you will be defeated to broker a deal, to find peace, because you know you cannot overcome. That same way when we look at our own lives, he asks us, look at your spiritual reserve. Are you in a place where you can confidently say, I have the preparedness and I have the concrete relationship with God that I need and that maturity to be able to withstand culture and all of those influences on my life the way that you're living it? And if you realize you don't have it, then wouldn't it be wise for you to broker a deal and to realize, you know what, we need peace here and this is the line that I'm going to draw and hopefully I'll learn how to back off and back away from allowing that to infiltrate into my life even further. The last point that Jesus makes in this passage is he says, it's all or nothing. Following Jesus is really all or nothing. There is no halfway. There is no middle ground. He says, it's either you're all in with me or you're not. You're either going into battle with me or you're not. He says, there is no halfway point here. Jesus is either really your Lord and your Savior, or he's not. See, Israel was supposed to be the salt of the earth. This is why, finally, now Jesus brings it to saying, you are the salt of the earth. And if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You know, a people through whom God said, I'm going to choose the people of Israel to be the salt, to be the revitalization, to be the preservation of all that is good and all that it was meant to be. He says, you are this people. That's why he says, I have chosen you so that people would always have a choice. They would see how other nations are living and then they would see comparatively how God's nation is living. And he's saying, as people see God's nation, they say, I want that kind of relationship. I want that kind of life, not the one that's over there. They were meant to be this salt. But if Israel lost her specific flavor, if Israel blended in with everyone else and all the other nations that were out there, then basically saying, what is left for humanity to compare faith with? If we, as followers of Jesus, look pretty much the same with good people of this world, then what's the point? You see, this warning is connected to the battle, and it brings us back into this all-or-nothing challenge that Jesus gives at the beginning of this passage by saying, if you don't hate, if you don't value me far and above every other value that you have, then you cannot be my disciple. Why? Because in moments of crisis, moments where push comes to shove, moments where rubber hits the road, moments when we really determine, does our faith matter in this moment? How's our faith going to react? Are we going to slink back and say, I'm not going back into that? Or are we going to step in in faith saying, this is all, I say I believe, so that's why I have to hold to Jesus in this area of my life. And that's where we experience God's power. That's where we experience this breakthrough 
in recognizing, yes, Lord, you are Lord, even in this area of my relationship, even this area of my work, even in this area of my securities, even in this area of my finances, you are Lord. This is where we experience that Jesus really says who he is. We believe it because we've experienced it through faith. Brothers and sisters, are our words in our occasional weekly tokenism that we do, is that worth building? Is it worth continually pursuing God the way that we are, or does something more need to happen? See, brothers and sisters, if we are either fully in, and Jesus is fully our Lord, and we declare him to be our Lord, or we face the ruin of our faith and always this mediocre and discouragement of lost battles in our life. It's just that one disappointment after the other in terms of our faith, saying like, I don't know where God is or I don't really feel God in my life. It's just one mediocre disappointment after another. And soon you'll find that your faith, whatever remnant that you have left of it, you'll feel like it's destroyed. It means nothing to you. See, brothers and sisters, the reason we are fully in is because we understand that our, our allegiance to God as our Lord and Savior, our allegiance to God is what revitalizes all other relationships in our life. It's what revitalizes our own hope in our own mind. It revitalizes and brings healing and desire and newness and into the very fabric of our significance and our identity and who we are. We come to a place where we realize there's no one like God. And here's the last thing that Jesus ends it with. He ends it with a question. Whoever has ears, let them hear. He says, do you guys, he looks at the crowd, do you guys understand what I'm saying? If you have real ears, hear it. In other words, he's saying, stop following the way that you're following, because it's not doing anything for you. You can just step aside, and that's fine. But for those of you who are really hearing it, then keep following, but change. It has to be lived this way, he says. It's the same challenge that we all have here today as we experienced Resurrection Sunday last, last week, and we have to ask, does resurrection matter? Is there really hope in that? Or are we going to just slink back into our normalized, everyday, controlled faith the way that we want it and see that that really makes no difference because there, we are God. There, we make the decisions. There, we manufacture our own fruit and our own results. God has nothing to do with it. We just give tokenism to him, but he really has nothing to do with it. That's my power, my ability, my resources, my strength. And that's why faith feels so numb. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge us today to really reconsider. What are we building? What kind of faith are we building in our life? And is it worth it? As I mentioned last week, every Sunday from 10.30 to 10.45, it's a very short time, 15 minutes. For those of you who want to engage and saying, you know what, I'm not sure where I can start, and I'm not sure if I'm ready for like this kind of all in, 
and I need a little bit of a kind of like weaning process in into it, then start with prayer. Prayer is the greatest tool God has given us. Let's pray that God will bring a revival in our hearts and in our community. It starts there. Leaning on God's power, leaning on God's presence, leaning together, saying, God, we know that only you can do this. And that's why, yes, even though I come 30 minutes earlier to church, I'm going to come 30 minutes earlier to prepare, to prepare my heart, to prepare my mind so that your words that you speak and the words that I read and the way that I do my worship, I'm prepared to experience you. Brothers and sisters, we're starting there. It's the first baby step that we have as a community. I challenge you. If you don't already have a prayer life, if you know that prayer is something that, we need, that you need to establish, start here. 15 minutes once a week is not asking for much, but it's one way we begin to prepare and to be ready so that when God calls us and into that urgent task, we can lean on him we can trust him and we can experience the good work that God wants to do in each one of us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for blessing us with this time that we have together. I ask, Father, Lord, that today's message, will, will it challenge us? The way that you address the crowds, will, will you help us to change, Lord? Will you help us to make the decision, yes, I'm not following you as I should. So I want to stop following in that way by namesake only or by my own control. I want to follow you as you are calling me to follow you. That you are Lord of my life. And I want to start in the area of learning how to lean on you in prayer. To depend on you through prayer. And to believe that through this, Lord, you will move in my heart. You will bring the revival. You will revitalize my soul. You will give me a fresh perspective. You will reinstill joy and hope in into my life. Father, Lord, may each one of us, as your precious sons and daughters that you seek out, may we respond to you with lifted hands and open hands and saying, yes, Lord, I want to respond to you. Yes, Lord, I want you to be my Lord. And yes, Lord, I will follow you. I want to invite you right now. I'm just going to take one minute. Just sit quietly before God. Be still. And allow the Holy Spirit to speak into you and to lead you and to respond to him in any conviction that he brings to your heart. Let's just, just pray for just one minute together. So, Father, may you work in our hearts. 
We want to see revival. We want a revival in our own faith and our renewed relationship with you. And we want to see a revival together as a community. And through this revival, Father Lord, we want to be a city on a hill, salt of the earth. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.